At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday at 10 a.m. ET to hear new stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Vel Omazic. Vel co-founded Canada's Music Incubator in 2011, and he's been CMI's executive director ever since. Canada's Music Incubator provides customized professional development, live performance opportunities, and ongoing mentorship to emerging artists, managers, and industry professionals across all genres of music. Bell has worked in the Canadian music industry for three decades in roles such as Vice President of National Promotion and Media Relations for Sony Music Canada. He's also on the advisory board for Toronto Metropolitan University's Music Den, a hub for music tech and next-generation music companies, and he's an advisor for Platform Calgary's Reverb, a music tech accelerator program. Vel also sits on the advisory board for Gate Crash Music's Amplify Incubator in Mumbai, India, which is modeled after CMI. Vel is also the community leader behind Startup Music, which is a Startup Canada community. And when I heard that Startup Canada had a music community, I said, let's get this guy on the show. Well, welcome at last to the Startup Canada podcast. Hey, Rick. Thanks for, uh, for having me and for being enthusiastic to, uh, to talk music. Absolutely. I've, I've always had this feeling that, that music has an energy and a passion about it that, that could actually enhance business if we could only figure out uh, how to do that. So maybe we'll get into that. But uh, the, the first question we traditionally ask on this podcast is to just let us know what... Uh, information, inspiration, tactics or tips you hope to share with our listeners and fellow entrepreneurs in this show so they know, hey, let's stick around for the whole time. Well, I think, uh, I, think I would start there, Rick. What I wanted to share with the audience uh, for the podcast, I guess, would be from, from my experience uh, moving from the for-profit sector to the not-for-profit sector. And uh, my, I guess, uh, my tips or 
Um, the thing that I'd like to communicate to those people listening today, for those especially in the not-for-profit sector, is, is that it's okay um, to have a for-profit mindset uh, in running your not-for-profit you know, without compromising the integrity and the vision of the mandate that the organization has. You know, and that's an attitude um, in addition to just day-to-day operations and administration. Right. Beautiful. Let's talk about your career. You've done some interesting things, multi-decade career in the corporate side of music and then, you know, transitioned into the entrepreneurial side, working directly with artists and, and I guess development of the artists as artists and business people. So tell us how you got started and and what it's been like and the most famous person you ever met. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sure. Okay. In terms of getting started, listen, I will tell you that my entire career is is basically a bit of a fluke. Uh, It was not planned to work in the music industry. If you go back to when I started, we're talking about five years really before kind of, you know, mass internet um, um, uh, access. And so I'm just a kid from the East End of Hamilton, you know, first generation Canadian. Um, And so I went to journalism school in the hopes of probably getting into either radio or television broadcasting. That was the original goal for me. Uh, And then it was just a, it was just a chance walking past the bulletin board. Remember those things, Rick, remember bulletin boards? I walked past the job board in the school of journalism. Um, and <laughs> oh, bulletin board, you mean on, on the wall, on the wall, on the wall at the school of journalism in Ottawa. Um, and I, I think there's the, it's moved from where the school of journalism has moved from where it was originally located on campus. Uh, but I remember walking past there. I was, I just happened to be like really late, uh, in terms of the exam schedule. I had one super late in the exam year. I think most of the campus had been deserted and I just happened to walk past and I saw this posting, uh, from a company called Polygram Records. Um, which was in Montreal. And I just kind of went back and I went to my typewriter, right? And I typed in a resume, mailed it, you know, and then basically within two weeks, I was in the Canadian music industry, living in downtown Montreal, and then uh, working in the music industry. It's something that I'd never dreamed of and never knew you could even work in the music industry. It was just a passion. I was just a fan. I always bought records, you know, and all, all that stuff. It was, that was my first job. They hired me as a writer. So my job was to write because that's why they posted at the journalism school. So they posted, they needed somebody to write artist bios and press releases and newsletters, you know, and things like that. So that's what I did, you know, from the minute I walked in for about a year and a half or two years. And then I just kind of, my career just naturally evolved and grew and, you know, Polygram merged with a company called a and Island Records in 1991. And they said, do you want to come to Toronto? And I said, well, sure. That's kind of like going home. I was happy to hear that. Um, and, you know, I've been in Toronto ever since. And so that's kind of how it started for me. Uh, and then it just my career evolved um, as opportunities presented themselves just kind of, you know, through the day-to-day course of, um, of working in the music industry. This is going to be an impossible question, but let's try it. Sure. Um, sum up how the music business has changed. The music oh. business has been wrung out like a like an old ringer washer it's been totally transformed turned upside down uh the genres um technology platforms everything's changed what is the state of the music industry now is it a place for you know we're we're a podcast for entrepreneurs so as a place where people can do deals and make art and make money and and create careers and lifestyles around music, is it still a happening place or has 
Spotify forcing everyone to eat peanut butter. Well, it changed. It wasn't Spotify. Spotify and, and the streaming platforms, we call them DSPs, digital service providers in the music industry. That's the terminology. But listen, the music industry, it tends to be the test case for most uh, technological developments, right? So we were on the front end of digital disruption. I lived that in 1999. And you might remember uh, there was a platform called Napster which was kind of, you know, file sharing and Napster and LimeWire. There were all these services that all of a sudden came out of nowhere. And those really transformed the recorded music industry, right? Because, you know, we made our money working as a multinational record company on on the sales of CDs. Um, And when people weren't buying CDs anymore, then obviously that changed the game. And we were really in the wilderness as a music industry. Like 1999 was the biggest year in the history of the recorded music industry. And then within five years, everything changed. And we went from 1999 when Napster first arrived to 2005 before you could actually legally buy a download in Canada. Five years. And I know in that time, a lot of things happened. Um, You know, I ended up uh, unfortunately having to lay a lot of people off just because the business changed so dramatically. So we were on the front end of that. And it's taken basically until... 2015, 2016, I think that's when Spotify and Apple Music and kind of the the now legal streaming platforms arrived. And so that 15 to 15 year window or so, I don't I don't know. I mean, I left music even for a few years in that time frame. Um, and then since that, things have turned around. So streaming uh, has ch- has been a game changer in a lot of ways uh, in terms of. Um, changing the model of the music industry from what was a, a ownership model. You know, you would go and you would go to a record store, Sam the Record Man or HMV Music World, wherever you went. I'm, I'm sure I'm having some nostalgia with the listeners out there. Um, but you would, you know, you would, you would, you would go out and, and you would own or maybe, maybe I'm dating myself for sure, Rick. You and I can maybe re- relate to that stuff. But, but now we've gone from basically a, a ownership model to a consumption model, right? So you have in, the entire history of music you know, in your hand, you know, paying $10 a month uh, through these subscription services. And that's what's changed. And so the biggest thing for entrepreneurs, especially creatives, creative entrepreneurs trying to make a career here is that um, what's happened is that access to the industry, uh, that barrier to access, which used to be you had to get discovered and signed and developed by, you know, Uh, major labels or major independent record companies who would invest in you. Well, the barrier to entry is gone because anybody can put out a record in 2022. But that's also the problem with the industry in 2022 is that everybody's putting (laughs) out a record and a lot of people who probably shouldn't be putting out records. Uh, No (laughs) no offense, but there's, you know, you're you're basically now a needle in a haystack. Uh, And that is the biggest challenge. Again, go back 20 years. I think we all knew, we all saw how music affected the culture and we all kind of knew what the big songs and groups of the day were in that in their time. Now it is extremely fragmented, right? And I, you know, I'd be hard pressed to tell you what the most popular artist or song of the day is in a given time. There's so many um, things that people can hear now. You know, you don't have to deal with the traditional gatekeepers of uh, radio and and video broadcasting. Now you can go and you can listen to whatever you want. So everybody's got their own little kind of. Um, worlds that they live in consuming music and so it's hard pressed to kind of know what the songs of the day are what the hits of the day are i don't even know anymore rick i'm I'm trying to figure all that stuff out (laughs) no more chum charts yeah i used to love those things i used to love those things right so what 
what advice do you offer, you know, young artists who come up to you and say, hey, I, you know, I really want to make it. I've got some songs on YouTube and I think, you know, I've got some talent. Um, I mean, the, the, the basic understanding, my basic understanding of the music industry is that it's still, you know, a billion dollar industry, but 99% of the money goes to like 100 artists. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that could that could work in a lot of industries, I would imagine. Um, but the advice that we work on, I mean, what we really see and really the whole genesis, the reason why we formed CMI uh, was just seeing, you know, we know how hard it is. I saw how hard it was to develop artists having the resources of a multinational corporation like Sony. And it's like, well, that doesn't make it doesn't make it any easier just because you have access. You still have to understand the fundamental principles of business, business on just straight business. Never mind then the nuance of the music business unto itself. And so, and what we've learned and what we see people coming through our doors is oftentimes they're coming to us, you know, uh, going through formal um, uh, college university programs who do a great job uh, on the creative and the music end of things. But there seems to be a gap in terms of preparing artists or just getting them conditioned in their brains that they are, in fact, small businesses, that they are entrepreneurs. And that's a message that we're trying to uh, lock into the brains of the people that come through our doors. You have to conduct yourself as such. And so um, we've identified a gap there. And uh, that's, that's really what we're doing. And the advice we're trying to do is uh, to give them, sorry, is all of that, you know, how to set up your business properly than how to, you know, release music, how to tour, uh, whether that's in Canada or internationally, and how to earn and how to make a living uh, and sustain yourself as an artist. That's the one thing they all tell us. Like when they, we say, well, how can we help you? What do you want? And the number one answer that we get is I just want to earn a living creating, writing, and performing music. How can you help me do that? Because not everybody wants to be Justin Bieber or Drake. You know, not everybody needs to be that. You know, we have in, in the world that we live in today in music, we seem to have basically the, the upper class and then everybody else, right? And so what we're hoping to do is maybe to see if we can reestablish and find some middle ground there, reestablish a middle class um, in the modern music industry. That is, is that your mission statement? Because it should be. Um, it's, not. it's not necessarily. It's more, we, we, we don't necessarily say middle class, but our part of our mission statement is just sustainable uh, careers, uh, for artists, entrepreneurs, you know, based on their definitions of success, because everybody has their own definition. You don't have to be, like I said, the number one charting artist in the world or selling artist. Um, you can you can be in that middle class and earn a living and do what you love, right? Uh, being responsible business owner, and you know, and we also have to train people who don't deal with music. Because sometimes music gets taken for granted. People don't see music as a business. It's the entertainment part. But people who hire musicians, understanding this is their livelihood. Why are you paying everybody else around your event but wanting the musician to play for free or for exposure, as we always say, right? Like, that doesn't make sense. It's like, would you do your job for free all the time? Like, it doesn't make sense. So we have to kind of educate not only the artists, but we have to educate the people who work around music and the creative industries, that same thing. It's not free. The artist has a cup there. People can put money in it. But I, I, I love the idea that you're creating that, that new platform, that new niche for artists that says, hey, you can have a life. You can have the lifestyle of an artist. Um, you can make it and you don't have to be signed to a record label to, 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 
to get her done. That's true. And that's something else that's changed, by the way, in the industry. Like before you had to, you know, you had to, to be just to be able to afford to get into a studio. It was so expensive that that was the only way to actually, you know, go and make a record. It was just a cost prohibitive to do it otherwise. And so now, yeah, now technology has changed recording studios. That's a tough business to be in as well, because now your laptop for a lot of people is your recording studio. Right. Um, and, and they so, hire one or two friends to play an instrument or two. If that, they don't even need it anymore. Everything's, everything can be programmed if you wanted to, Rick, other than, you know, sometimes live drums. But even I'm hearing a lot of records that don't even have live drums. It's a lot of this programmed. Um, but there's more options, at least to get into the space, right? But listen, just because you have that opportunity, it doesn't mean that the audience owes you anything. Like any new business, any new product or service, you know, you have to earn that customer. You know, you have to find that customer, you have to retain that customer, and it comes down to the quality of the art that you produce. We can teach you and we can equip you with the skills to run a business, but then the product itself, the music, the art has to speak and has to connect with people on an emotional level. That's the business of music. So tell me a success story from Canada's Music Incubator. Tell me how to tell me someone who's helped you've helped bring so our success stories, yeah, so our success stories, we work with artists that you would not know. They are not household names, right? So success stories for us, I call them micro successes, yeah. right? So in the grand scheme of things, you know, the world is not going to know. But, uh, you know, I had an artist last week who came to us and just simply, she said, I went and I, I, I negotiated and I advocated for myself in terms of getting a fair compensation for a live performance. And with the, you know, with the skills and the confidence we were able to equip her with, she got what she wanted. She got what she asked for. And a lot of times that asking to get paid by an artist is one of their biggest fears and challenges in life. Um, you know, so that's one example. The yeah, other examples are people who just, you know, who secure funding. You know, uh, we, have a, we have a pretty generous um, uh, funding program for the arts and music in particular. So, uh, again, the ability to record and, and create a competitive uh, release uh, that can that can go across the world. So uh, somebody is successful uh, receiving a grant. Somebody secures a partner with a music publisher, a record label, a manager, um, secures and books their own tour. Like I call all these micro successes, and I'm hoping over time that that's all going to compound into creating that middle class, um, you know, musical artist um, that uh, that we're trying to do. So you know, if you look at them in isolation. Nothing too major or earth-shattering, but over, uh, if you put it all together, um, I think you'll see that impact. And a lot of those artists, by the way, you know, they might at some point decide not to be artists. And we see that we're also, in a way, preparing the people who work in the music sector and the infrastructure side. So the managers, the labels of tomorrow, the booking agents, the concert promoters, uh, a lot of the artists at some point, you know, may decide to stop recording and touring. And I think we're seeing some of those people end up in jobs like that, whether it's in with music industry organizations and associations or doing it on right. their own. I mean, they love music. They want to stay in it. Uh, hockey want to be connected becoming to a it. coach. Yeah. Yeah. And in music, it's funny because you mentioned hockey. I always think about hockey and lawyers and doctors and accountants. The path, the career path to that is very clear. Like you can see that, right? When it comes to music and, and I guess I can say the arts in general, it is very muddy. There is not that direct path to where you want to go, right? It's not spelled out. You got to go do this and get, then go here for X amount of years and pass this test and get this diploma or this degree. Music is entirely different. There is no one path for everybody. Like, and you know, what you see one artist do does not necessarily, you just can't copy and paste that 
and think it's going to work for somebody else. You know, that's the, that's the beauty and music. You know, the one advantage we have as a product and service is, you know, we're human beings, like we're dealing with artists as people. And that really gives them advantage over, you know, packaged goods and services, things like that. The fact that we can connect on a human and emotional level directly, we can speak to our customers, right? Uh, as musicians, um, that gives us a huge advantage and connect on an emotional level in a way that most people can't or products and services can't. One thing that successful musical artists used to be able to depend on was that everyone they knew would have their hand out and get a piece of them and, and overcharge them. What is uh, CMI's model? How do you provide professional services to you know that middle class of lifestyle musician? Yep. Yeah. Well, we're not for profit, as 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 uh, as I mentioned. So for us, it's a combination, right? And I would just say right off the bat, you know, trying to build a business model on artists—that's a bad idea, right? Because 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 we just know that artists, you know, they are they are struggling to eke out a living and to survive. So our job is to work with partners and sponsors and funders um, to offset the cost of the professional development services that we provide. So we tap into that. Uh, but we also, you know, as an organization, recognize the importance. And again, this goes to back what I said earlier about having a for-profit mindset saying, well, we don't necessarily want to just be dependent on third parties for the future of our business. I don't know about you. I can't sleep at night worrying about, you know, our team and, and um, putting our business in the hands of third parties. You know, government can change, programs can go away. So the importance of also yeah, so, you know, we have to kind of create our own earned revenue streams. And that's really happened organically to us, right? So to kind of to help us continue to build and offer the services that we do. And I'm happy to get into that if you like. Well, let's talk about that. How do you get the, you know, you're talking about sustainability in a financial yep. sense. Yeah. Uh, how, how, how do you get that? Well, we started, listen, as any not-for-profit, because we didn't have any major angel investor or anything on our side. So we started from scratch. So we tapped into um, whatever public funding that we could secure um, and then look for some, uh, some, uh, some corporate sponsors. Uh, we do ask the artists that come into our programs. We want them invested, by the way. So we do charge program fees for our artists. We think it's an important um, uh, and a very important piece of what we do. We want artists to understand the value of investing into themselves and into their businesses. It also serves as a bit of a screen, a screening thing for us. It just attracts the, the kind of the right people, but we also recognize there's some people who may not have access. So that's why the funding partners and the sponsors become important to us. So we can recognize that not everybody is going to have this, you know, the financial means to be in the program. And then, and then, so what we're trying to do and what we've done is, you know, just by doing the work that we were doing, what we call our own core programs, Artist Entrepreneur, Artist Manager, Artist Entrepreneur West, people um, and other organizations started coming to us. Hey, we see what you're doing. Uh, could you help us with our organization? Could you help us run programs? So we created this whole custom program division. So we do things and we work with organizations like Keras, which is the Canadian Academy Recording Arts and Sciences, which is the Juno Awards. And so we help them run a, a professional development program on an annual basis. We work with the government of Canada to do the Passport Music Export Summit, which is a whole thing about exporting to other territories. And so uh, we get hired by municipalities. We just did an event with the city of Brampton uh, in the last week or so, and city of Mississauga and city of London to help uh, you know re-engage and rebuild the live sector and helping curators uh, build their businesses. And so that's become a whole... Uh, separate um, 
revenue stream for us. And then beyond that, uh, people then start to say, oh, you're working with all these artists. You know, I'm looking for this kind of artist in Halifax or this type of artist in Calgary. Do you know anybody? Well, as a matter of fact, oh, yeah, here's that flamenco artist in Calgary. Here's that jazz artist in Ottawa. We're happy to connect. And so we started to kind of curate for third parties, and that's become another revenue stream uh, for our organization. Uh, so I'm trying to balance it out. You know, as a not-for-profit, I, I want to not have all our eggs in one basket. So uh, our short-term goal is kind of split it, a third, a third, and a third. Can we have a third kind of public funding, a third sponsorship, and a third earned revenue? And that's our short-term goal. And the idea is to take take that earned revenue piece and, you know, continue to build that as much as we can go to become less and less dependent on third parties. Wow. That's a a very complex and professional business model. That's, uh, that, that, that's, that's well articulated, well planned. Is it working out? So far, you know, listen, the pandemic really messed us up, but it messed up everybody, right? And so we had to rely more on government subsidies and those emergency subsidies um, were very significant uh, to, to us. And I would imagine uh, not only the not-for-profit sector, but the for-profit sector, everybody. Um, but uh, we're seeing a bounce back. And, you know, our goal this year was, can we get as close to pre-pandemic levels as possible? And I'm happy to say that uh, not only are we going to do that, we're going to have the best year that uh, CMI has had um, in, uh, in 2022. What's the most important thing that uh, new artists that have, you know, just decided, yeah, this could be my career. I can do this from home. Um, what's the first thing they have to learn about running a business or being an entrepreneur? What, 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 what's the, the hole in their education when they come to you? Usually it's the financial part, Rick. It's just like, you know, we start and intentionally every program we start, will always start on things like uh, business structures, uh, business registrations, um, accounting, you know, um, um, uh, taxes, HST, GST, eligible, ineligible expenses, you know, uh, risk management, really kind of what we call the foundational stuff of business because a lot of them never had it. Like, to scare them off? <laughs> uh, no, we're trying to set up the foundation, Rick. It's all about laying that foundation because if that's not there, then it's all going to crumble down the road. So we feel that, and that sends a tone and sends a message right off the bat. So no matter what program we do, wherever we go, no matter if it's for a couple of a couple of months, a week, a couple of hours, we usually kind of stress that off, off of the hop and uh, just to kind of set that tone and get them thinking that way. You are a small business operator, right? And because listen, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, a lot of the institutional, um, you know, the education, the, edu the well, just the, the institutionalized education system we have, a lot of business learning is not required, right? Like it's just not mandatory to graduate. And we have an art school around the corner. And I know this. I asked them, what business courses do they have to take? They have to take a careers course in grade 10. And that's it. I said, who's even thinking about a career when you're 14? I know I wasn't. Um, and so I think, you know, it's got to start earlier uh, in the art schools. I mean, that's kind of, you know, to me, art schools and, and at that level, we need to have mandatory. And I think we're seeing some of that financial literacy has to be mandatory because too many people are coming to us and they're just not equipped uh, to do the basics of running a business, you know, simple things. Yeah. I, I totally agree that, that, that that's got to become a basic part of, yeah. of all education because we're all going to be entrepreneurs at some point in our lives, whether it's the beginning the middle or the end. But You're right. Yeah. The whole, uh, 
That's the whole point of school is to prepare you for a job, whether you're working for somebody else or for yourself. Why is it not mandatory? I, I just took, ended up taking business classes like um, economics and marketing, and I took law only because I knew I, I wasn't going to pass taking math classes. So I did everything I can to get out of math classes. So I ended up taking those. Those were the best classes I took because it helped prepare me for this stuff. And I think uh, we owe it to people kind of coming out because when they're coming to us, like they have a lot of creative abilities, a lot of talent uh, where they are lacking is just that basic knowledge of how to operate a business, even recognizing the fact that they are a business. And what do you do when someone says back to you, you know, Taylor Swift doesn't know how accounting works. Yeah, but she's got a team around her, right? So there are, there's always those exceptions, right? Taylor Swift, I work with a lot of big artists, right? So sometimes in her situation, at the end of the day, though, she's still the boss, right? So if something goes wrong in her business, she can only blame herself. If, if, so if she's signing a bad deal, et cetera, like that's still on her, right? She's still got to be responsible um, day to day because everything kind of stems through her, right? The money starts, it starts with her and then it, it just flows from there. She's got to know what's going on. Right. I think almost every big name musician has signed a terrible contract with somebody somewhere True. And, it and learned True. from it because sometimes that's the only way you learn is by having it happen to you. Yeah. There's certainly much more information available. You know, uh, obviously that's one of the benefits of technology, um, and a lot of people have heard those stories. You know, the, the history of the music industry is littered with people who got tangled up in bad deals um, and who didn't earn a cent or stopped recording or pushed them out of the industry. That's terrible. Like one of the things that we've that we do a lot of is we kind of help artists get untangled from from bad deals. That's just kind of part of the nature of the business. And that's how sometimes they end up coming to us. It's like, I ended up doing a bad deal or I put a record out and nobody cared. How do I do it properly? You know, these are common things that, um, that we hear about. And when you work with things like Toronto Metropolitan University's Music Den or Reverb in Calgary, are you sort of just bringing you to the program or are you bringing uh, actual CMI programming to them? That's separate. So that's just a separate, that's just me and my years of experience uh, and just helping organizations, whether, you know, they're tech-based or non-tech-based, just kind of helping them understand how the music business works, right? Because there's a lot of people who are into technology and they're music fans. Uh, but again, they also have to learn the mechanics of the music industry. It's complicated because we all have, we have all these different rights holders from songwriters to record labels, to music publishers, to performers on recordings. You have to kind of understand who all these people are uh, because it's going to affect how you develop, you know, your t the tech side of your business if you're going to be uh, getting into music. And if you wanted to impress me by telling me the most famous artist that you've worked with, would it be? Oh, that's a tough one for me. It's like, because I've met so many when you work for a multinational major label, <laughs> right? I, I hate to be a name dropper, um, but I would say, you know, my, my, I will say this. I said the biggest artist that in my career that I would have worked with um, was also signed to the Canadian company, which is very rare. A lot of the big Canadian artists who are signed to major record companies are signed to American affiliates. But I'm proud to say that I worked at Sony Music at a time when Celine Dion, who was the biggest artist in the world at that time, was directly signed to the Canadian company. And the way that it works in the record company is that the, the repertoire owner, so in this case, Canada, we own wow. the recordings, we paid for them, right? So any sale made anywhere around the world, a piece of that would flow back into the Canadian company. 
right? So all those Canadians who get signed to American companies, you know, well, the Canadian company is really just a branch office and they're not making the same kind of money that they would make as if they owned the repertoire. And so, so, so Celine on the Canadian side, on the international side, it's just so many, Rick, it's just impossible for me to say, just go through the catalog of Sony music artists, whether it's, um, um, whether it's like the likes of Destiny's Child or Bruce Springsteen or, oh, I don't know, uh, Rage Against the Machine. I'm just, I just, I don't know. Um, there's so, there's so, there's You're bringing there's back so many. everyone's favorite moments just by even mentioning these bands. Some of those names. I, you know, I, it's, it's Shania Twain in the early days. You know, I remember that name and, and seeing her come from, from nowhere. Um, you know, back at, the, you know, I come from that era. So I, you know, I kind of grew up in the music industry kind of uh, in the 90s. Right. Um, so, so you made Shania Twain what she is today. No, I did not because I left the company. I went and joined another company. Right. So I was there in the early days when nobody wanted to play that first record that she released. And then I left and I went over to Sony in the mid 90s. And then all of her success came in. So maybe you can say my departure of so, uh, from Polygram helped her achieve all that success that she, that she has had. But listen, she was a hard worker. I, I remember working with her. That girl, she knew what she wanted and she worked hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was really self-made. And they say timing is everything. So <laughs> it worked out for her. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship with Startup Canada. How did that start? And the, just for people who don't know, the Startup, Startup Canada has a number of communities. Most of them are geographically based. So it's Startup Ottawa, Startup Vancouver, Startup uh, Fredericton. And you came in and started Startup Music. So how did that come from? Yeah. And what are your goals for startup music? Well, uh, that came about, I was aware of Startup Canada, like from a distance. And then really about a year or so ago, um, Startup Canada reached out to us. And, and, and they came to us and said, you know, are you familiar with what we do? And we, we don't have a music community. Um, we're national. So that's why we don't have a Toronto, Vancouver or whatever, even though we're based in Toronto. Uh, our footprint uh, is is across the country, so uh, that's why we're startup music as opposed to startup music, say Toronto uh, or Calgary or whatever the case may be. And really, it was just an opportunity to to bring music uh, into the startup um, into the startup universe, I guess. And and our whole idea was to um, let the other communities know that um, you know if they have creative entrepreneurs that we could be a resource to them uh, and vice versa. Right. Um, so other communities will try and become sort of focal points for entrepreneurs in their physical communities, um, sometimes providing programs and sometimes mainly providing referrals. We know people who know people and we can get you through here. That's right. What, 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 what sort of services can you provide to, to entrepreneurs who come to you? Uh, well, I, I, again, it's just gui it's just guidance in terms of you know what you're trying to achieve uh, from a music standpoint, or it can be you know you're doing an event in a local community, uh, you're looking for artists. You know, we can maybe help you uh, secure some talent, find some talent for your startup event in whatever community that you are at. Uh, and again, if you have people within your community that are specifically specifically connected to the music space and need some help, and maybe you don't have that expertise, then we're there as a um, as just an extension of the startup um, uh, Canada family to to be somebody that you can you know have people steer them to us and we could potentially help. What them. would you like to see this partnership turn into? Is there a vision for 
where it could go or what it could be? That's a good question that you're asking. And, uh, you know, we have discussions planned with, uh, with Startup Canada to really dive into that because I'm not so sure if we've actually figured it out quite yet, other than what I've already explained to you, um, to see how we can really maximize uh, and contribute um, to, uh, to the Startup Canada community. I hope you come up with some great ideas um, because I, I don't know what it is, but I just feel that there is this link between business and music and that, that engages people. It draws people together. Music creates communities all mm. by itself. And there's probably a million ways to yes. adapt business to music and music to business and, 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 and push things a little bit, Further, when you find out someone loves the same band as you do, then there is trust. You've got a relationship. You'll go anywhere and do anything with those yeah. people. And, and, and music has this power. That, that, we're seeing, I can, give you, can I give you an yeah. example of something we're doing? Like through, through our, we have our live division. And so we're working with a couple of the major uh, office tower realtors in Toronto, for example, creating a welcome back to work type of series. So we're calling it, um, you know, courtyard concerts. And um, so in order to kind of help welcome the work staff back to offices, as people come back into the downtown core, we're creating, you know, uh, early morning and lunchtime performances to have music kind of welcoming people back into the workspace. And we've been doing that for a good chunk uh, of the past, I'd say six months or so. Good work for the the, the artists with a, with a, a client that they would never meet on their own. It's, it's plus business for them, right? Because it's during the day, which means they can still get a gig at night. Um, you know, so it helps pay the rent, right? So that's something that we're trying to do. We're trying to, you know, give artists these opportunities. We see it as an extension of the programs that we provide. We call it ongoing mentorship. And to me, our programs are important, but I feel the most important thing that we do, Rick, is the ongoing mentorship, meaning that people can access us anytime. Once they come through our doors, we're available to you. Um, no extra cost or fees associated. You reach out to us whenever you need us because I learned from my time in the music industry that you're not going to build a career in eight weeks or one week or a, through a panel. It just doesn't work that way. We have to be in the in the trenches with the artists, walking side by side and then guiding them through their entrepreneurial journey. And that's what we're prepared to do. I call it the dirty work. We're signing up, Rick, to do the dirty work that a lot of people don't want to do. But that's my favorite part is taking those those artists, those starters, those startups, and building them into something. That was always my uh, favorite part of working in the major label system. So I'm reluctant to drop names uh, in a lot of ways because that wasn't my favorite part. That was a lot of times, that was just what I call the marketing exercise. But the greatest satisfaction came from taking a Canadian artist that you built from nothing and taking them to the world. Right. One of the things that artists have to do is they have to build their own sort of community so they know who the session players are that they need. Hmm. Some who's who's got a flute that they can come in and lay down a track here um is 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 that something that you're being able to do is help accelerate connections yeah i think so i think that's a big part of it it's something something we didn't really you know think about too much when we started uh, but what we realize, one of the greatest benefits of what we do is, yeah, is just the community that you build. Entrepreneurship in general, whether it's creative or otherwise, uh, is often a lonely endeavor. And artists tend to be in their minds quite a bit and alone. So if we can bring them around a community of like-minded artists, equally motivated uh, to build their businesses and to want to grow and to want to work, then yes, 
we are helping them connect uh, through collaboration and building networks with one another, whether it's through performances or songwriting collaborations uh, and things like that. Uh, absolutely. In terms of, of the individual artists, do you have any advice to them sort of in general um, about what platforms to explore because someone's starting out and I've met a few people who, you know, they don't know, do I devote all my time to TikTok or sessions or YouTube or Insta or Facebook? No one says Facebook anymore. <laughs> you know, it's true. It's, they, it's, 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 where do they put their time? Where do they put their energy? Well, first thing I would say is you put your energy into the art. First and foremost, a lot of people are getting wrapped up and they're getting ahead of themselves thinking they've got to be these expert marketers. And what's happening is you're creating an inferior product. And so oftentimes if people are confused and, and not sure where to go, my advice would simply be double down on the art and the music. Push yourself creatively. You know, push the boundaries of the songwriting, the recording, your vocal talents, the skills development, right? Uh, and then when you're going to these platforms, I say go to where it's authentically you. You can't be at every platform necessarily. So you have to understand your audience. You have to figure that out through all the analytics that are now available in the music industry that we never used to have. We used to do everything on gut. Now you have all kinds of analytics and you can reach people in all parts of the world. Um, so these days I would say Instagram and TikTok would be the primary social media platforms where people are going to uh, in addition to YouTube. But again, certain artists might be more suited for Twitter or for Facebook, depending on their demographics. So that's part of the journey of the artist is to understand who their customer is and how to communicate, how to reach them. And are there any shortcuts to figuring that out, or you just have no? There's no shortcuts for there's no shortcuts for anything. We you all gotta, want you gotta, shortcuts. Yeah, I, I, I wish, and people think, oh, music is like shortcuts. And listen, there's always exceptions. You know, like you hear a song, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't hear it, and all of a sudden, you know, boom, it blows up for no reason. That's the beauty and that's the magic. I think that's why we always wake up every single day in the music industry, come to work is because you just never know when that, um, that, uh, that magic is going to happen. But generally, no, there's, there's no real shortcuts. Um, you know, you've got to do like I say marketing. I always describe it as a, just a, a, as, a, as an experiment, you know, or, or a recipe that you're kind of concocting, but never perfecting. You know, it's a moving target. You know, you're evolving as an artist. Your audience is evolving and growing in their lives. And so marketing is very inexact, but you've got to, you know, you've got to try uh, different things and put yourself out there uh, and learn and adjust as you go, just knowing that it's never going to be right never going to be 100% perfect. Right. The industry is always changing, but uh, um, hopefully in real time, we can see what the trends are. Yep. Right now, if, if I was going to make enough money to live on, if I was going to make $50,000 a year as an independent artist in Canada, where would you expect my income to be coming from? Can you break it down? Is it going to be Oh, ten dollars yeah. a year from Spotify and four hundred from TikTok and whatever. That's a great question. That's, that is a great question, Rick. And I would say traditionally, the in the early stages in the startup phases, where the money is going to come from primarily is going to be from the live performance, like going out to play, right? Um, so whether you're doing your own shows, headlining, whatever that case may be, that money can be relatively instant, right? But then your recordings and the copyrights, right? The copyrights, the compositions and the recordings that you create, well, that revenue takes much more time to generate and also to collect, right? So if you have a song played, for example, on the radio in, in Calgary today, you know, um, that, that buck 50 or two bucks that you earn as a songwriter 
isn't going to reach you probably for nine months, right? And if it's international, you know, add another three to six months onto that, right? So, so once you start releasing and getting into a rhythm, being consistent, you know, that money will start to flow. And as your audience grows and as your streams develop, um, you know, that money will start to flow. But in the early days, it's going to come from, I would say, probably 80% live, you know, and then there's all those other opportunities, the compositions, the, uh, the synchronization of audio visual. So music in film, television, advertising, video games, um, you know, things like that. Um, and then the royalties that come when people use your compositions and recordings, you know, all of that. And in streaming, listen, you know, people, people talk streaming is a big hot, it's a hot topic because artists are you know, getting paid fractions of pennies. This is a consumption model that I mentioned earlier, right? I used to buy a record. I would pay 10 or 15 bucks and I would listen to it over and over and over. I knew every single song, every lyric, everything. Um, but I only paid once. Now, every time a song is streamed, that's a financial trans. Uh, that's also, that's a microtransaction. Every single time, anywhere in the world, that is money going somewhere to somebody. Um, and that's kind of how it's going. And the general number ballpark is a million streams is probably around worth around four or $5,000. So really it's volume. So you have to be in like multiple, multiple, like millions of streams to see that. So that 50,000, right? You can do the simple math if you just wanted to earn it from streams alone, right? 10 million streams might get you to, to that, uh, to that $50,000 a year. Uh, again, if that was your only revenue stream, of course there's merchandise that goes with touring as well, t-shirts and things like that. So there's, there's, there's multiple revenue streams and those are things that artists need to be aware of. And just one final process question. If someone's a songwriter or write mm. any type of music, um, can you help them? Because sell, yeah. sell, selling music, as you say, there's so many platforms now, um, but, but how do you get started selling your music? Yeah. And it's not necessarily selling, right? If you're a songwriter, right, you would retain, you would want to retain the rights. You could sell all the rights and you can get paid up front. But then the risk is what if that song becomes like hugely popular and for the life of copyright, which is your life plus 70 years, that thing could be making a fortune and you sold it for a few thousand dollars because you needed the cash, no, right? Okay. So uh, I want to license my music, right? So I want to, yeah, yeah, I yeah. want the, this TV show to use it and that movie and... Yes, very important. I mean, that's part of it because as you can be both, right? Like, you know, generally in that age of 20 to 40, give or take, that tends to be your prime artist years. You know, of course, there's always exceptions on either end of that. Um, but you can be a songwriter for the rest of your life. And there's no reason why you can't write songs for yourself, uh, but also write songs for others. You know, there's a lot of artists that we meet are pretty versatile. Right, they have their career or kind of the lane that they've kind of developed for themselves creatively. But then they write all this other music, um, and I like that because then other people you let other people do the heavy lifting for you. Right, let them do all the marketing and the touring and the promotion, uh, and you're getting paid as that songwriter. Yeah, you're gonna get a piece of that. That's um, that's uh, can be a very lucrative side of the business. And there's some people who just work exclusively as songwriters, but there's some people that can do both. Right, but does CMI have a program or, or services that help songwriters or musicians, people who write not song, not, not songwriting, not, not songwriter specific, but songwriting is, is a big piece of what we do with artists. You know, the way that we break it down, Rick, is very simply this. We break down our programs and this is what we've learned over 10 years. Cause at first it was all about kind of understanding the business. And I said, okay, that makes sense. Right. But then we realized, well, the business doesn't matter. Um, if the product isn't any good. So we have to make sure we're also investing in creative development. So the songwriting, the performance, 
um, vocal skills, you know, studio recording is different from live performance. All these things we have to we have to invest in in the development there. And then we also have to the, the third piece of that is I realize, okay, well that's all well and good, but then we also have to invest in the human being and the person. Because if that person is a mess or a disaster, they need some help. So there's there's all of these. So I kind of that's that's kind of our 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 holy trinity of our, our approach in terms of the programs that we do. So business, creative, and human, uh, and we try to address all three of those elements in our programs. And how can someone get in touch with you if they want to tap your brain or learn more about your programs? Yeah, well, they can they can find us. We're uh, Canada's Music Incubator.com. It's a long it's a long handle. I wish I would have been a little bit smarter when I first did that one, but uh, you can you can reach out. Our email contacts are on the website. You can follow us at CM um, Incubator. That's our, our that's our that's our social handle, um, and that's how you can reach us. All right, and through the startup, you can reach us through the Startup Canada community as well. By the way. Well, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. I think it's it's really fascinating, but we've probably got to let our listeners get back to work and yeah. build their own careers. So thank you very much for sharing your journey with us and the stories and the information that you have. Final question. What's the best tip that you haven't mentioned already that you would mm. offer an artist who comes to you and says, hey, I really you know, want to dedicate my life and my career to music? Okay, to the artist. Okay, that's that's a good point. I would say the the most important thing is get started. Right, just those two words because a lot of times artists are thinking their songs have to be perfect. You know, the recordings have to be perfect. The songs have to be just right. The vocal takes have to be just right. Um, and if you go back and listen to the history of music, a lot of the things that that attract us to it are the imperfections. You know, and I would say it's more important to get started and start building you know, your audience and, and finding your audience as opposed to chasing perfection. Uh, and sometimes, you know, chasing perfection is just an excuse of, uh, I guess it's just fear kind of in disguise. All right. Great. So get started. And I would say, you know, our philosophy is crawl, walk, run. That's been the CMI model. And I tell that to a lot of artists, crawl, walk, run, um, uh, you know, ease into it, grow into it. Uh, and then our kind of our mantra as an organization always is um, also em embrace the path of most resistance. That's what we do. Embrace the path of most resistance. Yeah, because that's that's where usually that's the hard work, but that's usually where the rewards are found. If you can get through that. All right. Beautiful. A couple high notes to end on. <laughs> I've been talking with Velo Mazik, the co-founder and executive director of Canada's Music Incubator, the very innovative leader of startup music. And I look forward to you and Startup Canada continuing to make beautiful music together. Thank you, Rick. A pleasure to speak with you today. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.